welcome to the Innovation Roundtable Insights Podcast. This episode was recorded in Copenhagen during the 2017 Innovation Roundtable Summit, where our colleague Leonard sat down with Bill Fisher, Professor of Innovation Management at IMD. In this episode, Bill shares his view on the role of managerial choices in anticipating disruption and explores why a culture of innovation is essential for incumbents. The discussion also touches on how to approach forecasting and S-curves and what incumbents might anticipate from future technologies. So my name is Bill Fisher. I'm a um, professor of innovation management at IMD, and I'm interested in the, the whole spectrum of innovation activity, but I'm particularly interested in, in um, the role of managerial choice in anticipating disruption and then doing something about it. So I'm interested in how we look at an industry and think about its disruption, disrupt, its potential to be disruptive, disrupted, how ripe is the industry for disruption, um, and then what might be done to um, initiate change before disruption occurs. Let me ask you about, um, you know, you've been describing some of the S-curves in different industries and so on. Uh, what do you think is important for large companies in terms of um, their innovation framework, some of the principles um, to, to re today, uh, what has changed, and how, how should, should those frameworks or principles look like today? They ought to look inside out. I'm sorry, they ought to look outside in. They ought to look outside in. Change starts outside the industry. So uh, big change, surpriseful change, um, uh, disruption starts outside the industry. So if, they are, if their perspective, if their strategic perspective is based on benchmarking against peer firms and then responding to what they're doing, they are setting themselves up for uh, disruptive surprise because they're not looking in the right places. It's not entirely clear to me that you can actually identify a potential disruptor well ahead of time but you can anticipate the likelihood that one will emerge. And I think if you look at the customer journey, and this is B2B or B2C, it doesn't matter. If you look at the customer journey and understand how customers get their information, how they make their purchasing choices, um, if you think about where the pain points are in that journey, then you're, you have a much higher probability of understanding, anticipating where disruption could come from. Let me ask you a tricky question uh, from your presentation. I saw in one of the slides, and, and you've been talking about it, that success is really dangerous in looking. Um, and then uh, we have, an, and you, you've been talking about that struggle, you know, from the present to the future and not really focusing a lot on the past, but today, what is today, and how do we organize for the future in terms of innovation? Uh, what do you think are the reasons why this is so hard for incumbents uh, to look into the future and, and do that explorative work that is necessary to, to make them relevant in the future as well? There's two reasons, I think. One is they're successful. So they believe they know their business better than anybody else. But I would argue they know their business at present better than anybody else. The future might be different. They're not, their expertise is... And their assets are grounded in the present, hopefully not in the past, right? Um, but, 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 but the future is likely to be considerably different, both in terms of how the customer is dealt with, perhaps who the rivals are, how the rules of the game are played. And the inability to move from the present 
into the future, which means learning, right? Which means learning about new things is, is really a, um, a dangerous uh, limitation. And I think the, the second reason is, is because so much of the, so much of the trappings of success, the, the, the power, the influence, the income, the organization, so much of that is based in the present. And, um, and, and if you admit the future could be different, then you imperil all of those things. So I said that success is dangerous, but hesitation is suicidal. And, and what you see is firms that hesitate really are setting themselves up for, for a, a bad outcome. Now let me ask you one follow-up question to that. It's about, um, do you think there's any uh, you know, public listed companies that you know, have the success during today and having cash cows and different markets and different products uh, around. Uh, and do you think that kind of the, the, uh, the stock market and the public listing makes it difficult for them uh, to focus on the future when for them they are measured in today's and they are measured sure. quarterly? Yeah. So one of the things I've heard in many of my conversations with participants here today is how their senior management teams are uh, reluctant to engage in long-term, speculative, experimental types of research because it adds costs and no revenues, and they're quarterly driven. So um, somebody said the, the future is forever, but the present is next quarter. And uh, you know that, that, that about sums it up. But I think it's a, real, it's a major limitation. What I don't understand is I don't understand why boards are not more active in in promoting the sustainability of the firm rather than putting it into a position where it's vulnerable to surprise. Let me, let me just point something out. And, and, and what I think is different, so I think this has always been a problem, right? Always, always, always. There's always been a long-term, short-term pro pro problem ever since I've been in this business. The difference is the long-term in the past was longer so that we could, we could make choices secure in the, in, in the expectation that no big surprise was coming soon, that we would remain within the, the, the boundaries of the existing S-curves for the foreseeable future, maybe for our entire careers. I don't think you can say that anymore. I think the combination of digitalization and business model innovation has made market entry disruption easier. The, 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 you used to have to hire engineers and scientists. You don't have to do that anymore. So, so it's easier for firms to come in and become disruptive. And as a result, the, we no longer have the luxury of thinking that'll never happen to us. More likely, it's going to happen to us, and it's going to happen to us soon. What do you think that kind of new era of innovation, what do you think, what kind of capabilities and skill sets do those incumbents, do those large companies need in order to, to move, to make that next S-curve theirs and not, not another place? So because we're going into the unknown when we move from one S-curve to another, um, we, can't, we can't use, it's not entirely clear that we can use existing expertise or the legacy learning asset, knowledge assets that we have. So we need to be, and you can't forecast, if you, if you can't define your industry and you can't explain what the value chain looks like, and if you don't know who your rivals are, it's kind of hard to forecast with any degree of, uh, of, of, of comfort. So we have to be more experimental. And when you become more experimental, the, the, the inevitability of failure becomes larger. 
The goal is not to fail, the goal is to succeed, but we're going to use experiments to try to test the market, to see how the market responds to our ideas, and to see if, in fact, we can do these things. And every time we experiment, we run the, the inevitability of failure. So we need to be prepared to do that. We need to be prepared to scale learning. Um, we can scale efficiency, but we need to be able to scale learning so that if we experiment in this market and we learn something, that the rest of the firm understands that very quickly. It's, organizational learning is tough, and scalable organizational learning is unthinkable so, or unthought of. So my sense is it's, the, the challenge goes about the value of learning, um, the, the, the acceptance of all of the implications of that, failure, costs, things of that nature, and the willingness to try to make learning scalable. And that, incidentally, that's, we're, we're asking people who are already successful in the present to change their behaviors to do that. That's hard to do. You've also talked briefly about disruption, and that term is used in many different ways, and it was originally termed by Christensen. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, when he was arguing, it was coming from a kind of a low price right. or the, the, the bottom of the market right. and then right. working your, yourself. And how do you uh, think this uh, disruptive or disruption, in, if you would enlarge that, um, because Airbnb and Tesla and all of those would not be classified as disruption right. uh, in, in, in Christensen's terms. Maybe you can reflect a bit on that, what, what dis how you would describe disruption and what you would include into it. So I, I think uh, Clay's work on, um, on disruption has been uh, enormously useful. I mean, S-curves have been around forever, but we've interpreted them differently. And, and what we saw was at first they were around functional capabilities of devices, lights and things of that nature. Now, then Christensen pointed out, and nobody, nobody saw this, but Christensen pointed out that it was all about industry upheaval. Um, I think the next step is to say it's about customer experience and, and regard them differently than if it's just about industry upheaval because the industries change. I think they are no longer, our understanding of disruption is no longer limited to lower price market entry, but in fact, as you point out, can be much more complex, mm -hmm. higher price entries as well. The, the, for me, the test is, Does the market structure look different after this happens than it did before? And usually it does because new firms dominate the market and old firms are gone. So that's a clear case of disruption, I think. Let's talk a bit, a bit more about leadership. And you've uh, used the terms of discoverers and explorers and, 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 and elaborated that in, in the presentation. Uh, what do you think, how do you think you develop those kind of leaders, those kind of explorers that, that are necessary, you know, to tap into that future? So I think there has to be a, a, a recognition that leadership styles need to change, at least when we go into the unknown. It, it's, it, it's hard for me to believe that we can change technologies and organizations and not change our leadership behavior. That seems a little bit um, uh, preposterous. Um, I think that Several things have to be done. I think that one thing is is that firms have to publicly acknowledge the changes taking place and say, yes, we need to be different in terms of our leadership style and celebrate new leadership styles, use them as role models for going in the future. I think that 
business schools need and leadership uh, coaches need to emphasize the changes and, and, and begin to help people work through how their behaviors might change and how they might act in, um, in different situations. I think we have to convince leaders they have to give up power. Um, they can't do it by themselves. There's too much complexity in the world of the future to think that any, lead, any one leader can lead on the basis of her or his expertise. And so they have to invite others in. And that's something that's often difficult for leaders to do. Um, they have to give up control. And so I think that these changes are profound. I think they can be coached through this, but I think we have to first recognize that it's important to change leadership behavior. Now, what do you think about culture and culture and innovation? I mean, if you, if you discuss those two words, what do you think is important when, when, when we're thinking about a culture that is really uh, prepared and, and is, creates a fit into what needs to be, or what, that environment that we're moving into? So, um, I, I think, without a doubt, if you look at the high-performing, innovative organizations that we all recognize, the Googles and the Apples and Amazons of the world, and the Toyotas, for that matter, they... they, they they all have high-performing cultures. They, they, their cultures are all different from the, from the cultures of peer competitors who are less successful in innovation. Culture matters. It's very, very important. I've always thought that culture should be... I always thought that culture is the outcome of managerial choices, that those managerial choices are aimed at the vision and that they reinforce each other. So I have always assumed there's been a great deal of coherence and alignment. Lately, there's been an argument that maybe they don't need to be so. Maybe it's the unaligned or the capacity to be misaligned that allows organizations to go into the future. I think that's, that's interesting. My great fear is that many organizations only pay lip service to culture. They don't have the patience or the um, commitment to make the very granular choices, pedestrian choices, that are required to change behavior. So, you know, we say, we say behavior is the outcome of managerial choice. It's also the outcome of not making a managerial choice. And I think that in many of the organizations that I have a chance to see, not making choices is more normal than making choices. What do you think could be some of the initiatives that are important to drive cultural changes uh, because it's so important that, you know, you had a big slide up there, change right. is going to stay. Right. Uh, and are those cultures, I mean, they have been uh, really classified, or they functioned as like an anchor yes. of, of what to do. And now we're moving into a, yeah. an environment with change, all the time, which is changing all the time. So how does that, how do you see uh, attention there? And how do you see uh, m maybe some ideas or opportunities to, to you know, leverage that. that so, and you remember that Bertrand Picard, I quoted Bertrand Picard where he said, success is not, um, is not adding new things, but it's discarding the old beliefs and things that get in the way. So I think you're absolutely right. Um, think about what an organization, think about what an organization would look like if it accepted continuous change, right? Change is continuous, but organizational life is episodic. And so we're always behind. And, and I think that 
One of the things we must do is we must adopt a philosophy that says change is continuous and we need to respond continuously to change. And what does that mean? It's not entirely clear to me all of the implications of that, but what I think it means, among other things, is it means that organizations have to be more experimental, faster, faster for sure, because you're always going to be wrong. They have to invite more people in. They have to be more open and more inclusive in the way in which they seek out ideas. They have to be explorers. They have to look at organizations and industries, perhaps, that have coped successfully with change and try to learn from them as they go forward. Then what I thought was uh, interesting as well, um, the, the, the model that you showed about uh, human adaptability right. and technological kind of change right. Right. or technological development. Um, that picture looks a bit uh, disencouraging uh, looking into the future. Uh, I think one of the, the, the possible scenarios was kind of the accelerated learning uh, that needs to look into or right. how do you see that those um, you know those tensions but also those parallel developments that that are not in, in sync anymore? Well almost always they're the reason why people say they're firefighting or running to catch up and, 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 and the like. I think that 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 chart comes from Thomas Friedman and what he argues is that technological change is exponential and um, and human capacity to cope with changes uh, or human adaptability tends to be linear. It's probably linear because of the way we organize. It's probably linear because of the way in which we um, lead. And my sense is that that doesn't have to be linear. We can, and certainly with the advent of artificial intelligence, there's a capacity to match exponential growth with exponential learning um, or augment human learning with, with exponential learning so that it's at least faster, if not exponential. But I think we have to change the way we think about how the organization's constructed, um, what freedom means, and, and who has autonomy, and how power is shared in the organization. And it's, and, and it's a or devolution of power, not a, an aggrandizement of power. Let me ask about uh, you know, outside partners and, and more the open innovation framework. Um, and how how you see that connected to to that change that is happening and 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 many and you've said it yourself many companies opening up right. um, what are some of the challenges that you see and one, what are some of the, the the learnings but also of course opportunities for that opening up and and leveraging the environment around us right. so I think you have to open up I think that the world is too complex to believe that any one firm and certainly any one leader can do all of this themselves. I think one of the one of the liberating one of the liberating elements of change today is that you can't do it by yourself. So don't you should never take on the burden of being alone. You should have partners. But once we get into the partnering business there's suspicions over intellectual property, over over fame and fortune. There's there's misalignments between organizational cultures we don't understand. They look like us, but we don't understand why they're doing things the way they're doing them. We don't have the luxury of time to learn more about our partners. And so I think there's a lot, I mean, it's not unreasonable and it's not illogical, but we have to change it, right? It's the, it's, it's the outcome of different organizations doing different things in different ways at different times. And now somehow we have to bring them together so there's a more satisfactory 
conversation between them. And that's tough. That's really difficult to do. I mean, I, when we built the partnership between IMD and MIT, no two organizations have ever been that different, right? And we struggled. And fortunately, in this partnership, um, the fellow at MIT and myself have become the closest of friends. So while there's a lot of organizational misunderstandings going on, the two of us become the spokespeople for the other, right? And um, that allows us to speak into our organizations with voices that they trust, as opposed to me saying, well, the MIT guys, you know, what do I, how, no one can control them. It's not that at all anymore. It's always difficult to predict future, and, right. and it would be nice if any one of us can do it. But I would like you to reflect a bit on uh, where do you see kind of industry heading? Will those, I mean, now we're, we're seeing that startup ecosystem and startups, you know, growing tremendously quickly into large companies themselves. Uh, how do you see uh, large incumbent companies, uh, how do you, where and how do you see them in, in, in 30 years' time to 20 years' time? which is a long time into the future, you know, right. considering the change that we're, the acceleration that we're living in. Um, is it going to be a networked industry or that we're seeing with opening up and creating those uh, ecosystems? Or what are you, where are you seeing where we're heading with those large, old, traditional companies that, uh, that have been there for 100 years or more? Right. So many of them will be gone because they can't, they can't, partner because they can't network, because they are so busy looking at the present that it's hard for them to look at the future. Um, and I think that's unfortunate, but I think that's the way in which industries evolve. And, and, and um, the people associated with them will be, uh, unfortunately, they'll be hurt by this. But, but I think that's the way change takes place. It's interesting what you, you know, if you think about the future, one of the things that's looming in our future is the Internet of Things. And the Internet of Things, I believe, will profoundly change all industries. And it'll change all industries because our expectations are going to be different. If I can get this type of, uh, today we heard two speakers talk about the Internet of the Home. Well, the Internet of, a, of the Home is, in a sense, a microcosm of what the Internet of Things will look like. And if I can begin to experience this at home, why wouldn't I expect it to work in other, uh, 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 other areas of my life? With the Internet of Things comes the necessity, absolute necessity, to partner with others because n no one company has or should have all of the requisite assets and skills to be able to provide a, a, a satisfactory, integrated customer experience. And it also means that Companies will have to cede power because they want to bring partners in to share their operating systems or their, 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 their formatting. So I think this is going to be, you know, like, like you know, I, I sort of believe this will be a change on the order of the Industrial Revolution, that everything will be affected by the Internet of Things. And, um, and I have no idea how to predict survival except that I think the more open you are and the more um, inclusive you are, the better chance you, you, you have. But there's no guarantee that bigness or brand will, 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 will win. Um, and, and we'll all go through it. This is not a choice. I mean, this is, we're all being swept along 
in this internet of things. And you could talk about it as the internet of customer experiences and how you need to be able to pick partners who can match or better the customer experiences that you're giving so that the whole network prospers. That's a different way of thinking about the world. Last question, uh, Bill. What do you think, if you look back, I mean, you've been in that, uh, uh, you've, you've had a lot of experience, a lot of years of experience by now. If you look at innovation throughout the years on, a, on, a, on, on that time perspective that, that you have experienced it, what would you say are the profound changes uh, that, you, that you have experienced until today? Um, and what do you think are the reasons for that? So I, I, I think that um, uh, from, from inside out to outside in, it's been a huge change. Um, 10 or 15 years ago, we were talking about an innovation funnel. We were looking at um, time to market, and we were uh, pushing ideas out. Um, that's n n no longer true almost anywhere today. Uh, it's all outside in. And so that whole reorientation and all of the implications of that has been um, profound. Second, business model innovation. You know, we, 10, 15 years ago, when we would have a meeting of innovators, they would all be techies. You know, they'd all have some tech. Now it's, now there's such a wide range of people and experiences involved in the innovation conversation that the conversations are different. Who you network is with is different. And so to an extent, the third one is behaviors. Innovative behaviors are, are different. I, I said earlier today that I think innovation should be a verb, not a noun. I think that for most of my career, innovation, innovation has been the province of, or I should say protectorate, of um, engineering and science. And, and I was a beneficiary of that as an engineer. It was, it was, but today, almost anybody can be an innovator. Almost anybody can disrupt an industry. They may not have the technical skills, but they have the business model acumen To, be, to, to, to change industries. So my sense is that the democratization of innovation has been a huge thing. So three things, from, from um, inside out to outside in, from um, uh, technology to, um, to, to, to everybody, and um, from, from, from being the province of a select few to being a democracy. I think those would be the things that I would... I would, I would count on, and that's, you know, those are big. Each one of those is big. And to have them all happening at the same time is rather, rather amazing. I mean, you know, I, I, it was interesting. I just, just the other day saw something on Twitter which stopped me cold because um, when I did my Ph.D. research, my doctoral research, um, it, part of it was around the optimal size of innovative groups. And we looked at industries and we measured um, innovation group size and we measured success and we drew some conclusions. You would never do that today, you know, you, you, because innovation needs no size. You know, you can do it in a startup, you can do it in a big firm, you can't do it in a startup, you can't do it in a big firm. It's, size is almost irrelevant today. You know, I, I, and there's many, many more of those sorts of anomalies that were important 10 or 15 years ago, not important today. I think Porter model Big yesterday, gone tomorrow. You know why? Because it's it, it, because it's episodic in a continuous world, and so it, it's it, it, it's out of sync with the tempo of our times. Bill, 
Thank you very much okay, once again for, for, the, your, for your presentation and for that interesting uh, conversation. This is great. Uh, thank you for inviting me. The video version of this podcast can be accessed via innovationroundtable.online. The Innovation Roundtable online network is your portal to a wide variety of exclusive content, including video presentations, interviews, insights reports, and articles. Not only that, innovationroundtable.online is also a place where you can connect with other corporate innovators, share experiences, request collaborations, and gain inspiration from your peers. Our network is exclusively for innovation practitioners and large firms. So visit innovationroundtable.online to discover more and request your seven-day free trial account.